A lot of folks wonder if prayer works. We all experience seasons where it doesn't seem like God hears anything we are saying, but don't give up. Prayer does work. And in today's episode, Chris will share a few practical approaches to prayer and look at how they unfold in Genesis chapter 18. Well, hello and welcome back to In the Beginning. We are cruising through the book of Genesis. We are in chapter 18. If you're new with us, I want to encourage you to go find a Bible, a paper Bible that you can actually write in and take notes and turn to Genesis 18. It's easy to find, beginning of the book, chapter 18, not hard at all. This is the easiest Bible find you will will find. And uh, each week when we get together, I want to encourage you to have a Bible with you that you can take notes in, make connections in, underline things, all of that. That is a useful tool. I'm teaching out of the New International Version, so if you have one of those, that's great, but it doesn't have to be that, but get a Bible. Now, buckle up because things are about to get interesting. We've been tracking for the last many weeks with a guy named Abram, who last week his name became Abraham because God renamed him. And uh, Abraham uh, was a guy that that God reached out to and said, hey, we're going to change history through you and your family. And I'm actually going to bring blessing to the entire world and every nation through you and your family. And eventually Jesus comes through Abraham's family. Now, uh, we are in chapter 18 of Genesis, and, and last week, Abraham had been, been kind of walking faithfully with God for about 13 years, and, uh, and, but nothing big to report. Like, God hadn't done anything big enough to make the book, and uh, Abraham hasn't done anything dumb enough to make the book. Those were kind of the standards that, for getting into the Bible at that point. And um, and so Abraham is just kind of plodding along with God, doing the next right thing as best he can, not perfectly, and then God shows up again. But it's been a 13-year gap as far as we know. Now, this week in chapter 18, it's not a 13-year gap. We're looking at a, a couple days to maybe three months at the most. And, and we'll pick up in Genesis 18.1. This is what it says. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, where he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. All right, so Abraham sees three guys standing standing over here. He's at his tent, and he goes over to them, and he bows to the ground. So clearly, these are not just like normal human beings. There's something about them that stands out that he would bow before them. Now, what we go on to find out is they're angelic beings. Um, they, they're, and we don't know the details. We don't know whether they were super tall or really buff because they were angelic warriors or if they had wings. I don't think so, but we don't know. All we know is that they were different enough that Abraham knew that they were from God, and, uh, and he goes over and he bows before them. Um, and, and so it's been a couple weeks, maybe a month or two since God last showed up after a long gap, a 13-year gap of nothing much happening. And so this brings me to my first point in this message, which is, is simply this. There are seasons to a walk with God. Let me explain what I mean by that. 
Abraham has 13 years of kind of everything just being normal, right? Uh, there were no healings, no promises, not even an interaction that's recorded. He's just doing the best that he can, not perfectly, but as faithfully as he can to walk with God. Now, and then God shows up, and then God shows up again. And in the beginning of this story, God shows up a bunch, right? But there are seasons to a walk with God. Typically, when somebody first becomes a Christian, especially as an adult, there's this season of, this is amazing. I mean, I can't believe God died for me. And then and this, this relationship with God, every time they open the Bible, they're like, oh my goodness, this was written just for me, you know? And, 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 and I was praying and God kind of nudged me and, it's, 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 and this goes on for a while. And then one day they wake up, and this is not always, but typically they wake up and they're like, where'd you go, God? I'm, I'm not hearing you speak to me any, or, or it just, everything kind of goes quiet for a little while. And you, and you hit a season like Abraham did last, last week and before last week of walking faithfully with God. You know, here's what you need to understand about seasons. No matter what season you're in, God has not left you. He is still there. And we will have seasons where God is nudging us and speaking and all of that. And then we will have seasons where we're just going to church and reading the Bible and working our job and raising our family. And in those seasons, I think God is up to something big in our faith. I think we are, in those seasons, we learn to trust God in season and out of season, as, as Paul wrote in Timothy 4. So, you know, the, the, it's kind of like the, the, the principle of a, of a plant. If a plant doesn't get water, the roots go deeper. And in, in those seasons where we don't hear God as much or it feels a little drier, our roots go deeper into what we know is true and where we learn to walk by faith, not by feelings. And this is an important lesson in the life of a believer. Guys, there are seasons in the walk with God, always are. But now we're into another season. Things are starting to move again. In verse 3, it says, he said, if I found, this is Abraham speaking, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass by your servant. And so Abram's like, there's a little bit of, oh, oh, don't just go by. Don't, don't leave, stay. Let's hang out for a while. Let's spend some time. I like this season. And we do the same thing. We love those seasons where, where our interaction with God is more alive than others. In verse four, it says, let a little water be brought and then you may you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. So he's like, God, dudes, dudes, stay. Let's hang out. Let me get you some food. We'll wash your feet. Kick your sandals off. Stay a while. And they answer very well. They answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get some flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to the, to a servant. I'm wondering how you know if it's a tender calf versus a, a, a chewy or tough calf. Is there a farmers? Anybody know? I don't know. Anyway, because it's a calf. Calves are supposed to be tender, right? Maybe it was veal. I don't know. All right. I'm sorry. I completely 
off track. All right, who, okay, let me start again. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them while they ate. He stood near them under a tree. So almost like a servant. I kind of picture Abraham there with a towel over his arm. He is going to be the father of many nations, the most famous person other than Jesus to ever live in the history of the world. But he's there with a towel over his arm, standing at a distance, making sure they enjoy their meal. And then verse 9, it says, "Where?" Um, one of the angels says, where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. Well, there in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Okay, he's reiterating the promise made in the last chapter and that it would happen quickly within the year. So now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. She's 90 years old. Now, we've talked about in previous weeks the fact that that uh, they lived longer, and so they're, conceivably their, their years of childbearing were longer than ours. But at 90 years, she's done. She's through menopause. The hot flashes have happened. It isn't going to happen outside of a miracle. So Sarah's listening at the entrance of the tent. She's kind of like, listen, what's going on? What are they saying? This is big, big doings. And Abraham and Sarah were already very old. She was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and old, my Lord, lowercase l-o-r-d, she's referring to Abraham here, is old, will I now have this pleasure? The thing that they wanted more than anything else was to have a, a child, not just a child, but an heir, a son together. And it just, you know, they kind of accepted that it wasn't going to happen even though God had promised and they're still wrestling with this doubt and it kind of seems impossible at this point. In verse 13, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So saying, look, it's going to happen. There's a, it, it, would, it will be a miracle, but it is going to happen. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now, I find this kind of comical because here we have the Lord talking with Abraham, having a conversation. Sarah, Sarah laughs at his prophecy of what, what is to come because it seems impossible to her. Abraham laughed last week. You know, there's a lot of laughter going on, and uh, but God kind of gets offended by it, or at least it would seem like it. I don't think he really does, but he's like, why is Sarah laughing at me? She probably was even laughing under her breath, I mean, but, he, but God knows, because God knows everything. It's almost like God gets offended. And in verse 15, it says, Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Which brings me to point number two of this message. This is a good one. You may want to write this down. Don't lie to God. Don't lie to God. He already knows. Whatever it is, whatever it is you think you're, you're pulling off or hiding from him, he already knows. Don't lie to God. 
You know, the fastest way to become a hypocrite is to pretend you're something that you're not, to pretend you're not doing something that you are, or that you are doing something that you're not, or that you're something that you're, or just to lie to God, don't do it. Now, there is no reason for her to do this. God has demonstrated over and over and over again throughout the last 25 years that he is merciful, that they don't have to pretend with him. And yet in the moment, I didn't laugh. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Guys, as, uh, let me speak to the church people for a minute. Re- guys, religious people, church people, guys, we have a propensity to do this. We really do. We, we will deny the things that we struggle with. I don't, I don't struggle with lust. I don't struggle with greed. I don't struggle with, with doubt. I don't struggle with control issues, whatever, whatever it is we, or, or, you know, we pretend to be more righteous than we are. You know, I, I don't struggle with doubt. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And that's a true statement. Absolutely true. But a lot of times we'll say something like that to cover over the fact that we're struggling with doubt. And we don't have to pretend with God. And we don't have to lie to God. The fastest way to the heart of God is not pretending you have it all together. It's admitting that you don't. Let me say that again. The fastest way to the heart of God is not pretending you have it all together. It's admitting that you don't. God rushes in when we get real. God cherishes that kind of authenticity. And it's when we get real, when we admit, when we are honest with him and invite him into whatever the struggle is that we're dealing with, that he can do big things in our life and in our hearts. Posers and pretenders will always languish. Don't lie to God. He already knows and it will keep you stuck. Well, we go on in verse 16. It says, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. Yes, we're going there. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. So, so they're walking along, the three, the three dudes and, and Abraham having this conversation, and, and one of them says, should we let him in on what's going to happen next? They're heading towards Sodom. Now, spoiler alert, not really a spoiler alert, because most folks know what happens at Sodom and Gomorrah. Hell, hellfire and brimstone come down from the sky and wipe them out. That's next week. Don't want to miss it. Um, but, 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 but. They're like, should we let him know what we're here for, what we're going to do? That's kind of implied. And then he goes on and says what Abraham uh, and his his family will, will bring to the world. Shall we let Abraham in on why we're here? Now, he's made a promise to Abraham that he is going to, he has given Abraham um, instruction on what is right and what is not, on justice 
and righteousness and, and how to live for God the way of the Lord, he says. So he has some of that instruction at this point. It makes it very clear here. In Sodom and Gomorrah, people were living in all kinds of wickedness in the eyes of God. Sin has corrupted everyone and everything, and they have given themselves completely over to it. There is no restraint. They are not trying to resist. And then you've got Abraham, who will eventually inhabit this whole land, right? And the Lord the Lord is like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go down and, and, and wipe them out, basically, because, because you're going to live different, but if they're that given over to the their wickedness, it will corrupt everything. So the Lord gives him some instructions. He says, he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Abraham and his family, they're going to be a group of people who will do their best, not perfectly, because they've been infected by sin too, but they're going to do their best to follow God's ways, to do what is right and stay away from what is wrong. What, what happened in Sodom is that you have a society that has thrown off everything that is right and taken on everything that is wrong. And a society that has thrown off right and wrong and given themselves over to their base instincts will be destroyed. It will be, either by hellfire and brimstone, and as we'll see in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, the judgment of God, or simply by societal implosion, right? I mean, you look at the Roman Empire, at the end it was just they had given themselves completely, completely over, and, uh, you know, the hordes were at the gates, and we go into the Dark Ages. It's not a good situation. It never is. In verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, God already knows, right? It's not like he's, he's unaware. He's saying, If I find what I heard to be true is true, I'm wiping them out. Why? because of the wickedness, because they had given themselves over completely without restraint to sin and to wickedness. Now, guys, what does that look like? It, it means there's no restraint. It means the powerful have their way with the weak. It means hell on earth. It means children are abused and raped and, and uh, neglected and, 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 and men dominate women and, 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 uh, and one another, and it's just like... It, you wouldn't want to live in that environment. Nobody would. I'll let Chris do talk more about that next week. Um, but let's continue. In verse 22, it says, The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, this is interesting. Um, two of the angels or angelic beings go on toward Sodom to check things out. The one stays behind. And it says, Abraham is standing before the Lord. Now, Lord there is spelled capital L-O-R-D in the English. And when it's spelled capital L-O-R-D, 
It is uh, translated from the Hebrew in this case, either from Yahweh or Jehovah, the names of God. So before him is not just an angelic being, it's God. It's actually Jesus before Bethlehem. And we have seen this throughout the book of Genesis. You know, the idea of the, of God existing as a, as a spirit, as the spirit, the spirit of God is, is existing as the, the son of God, the, the image of the invisible God. And then God, the father, we see that throughout the book of Genesis at the very beginning, Genesis 1, 26, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We see the spirit of God hovering over the face of the earth. And in John chapter 1, John says that everything was made through Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, it says it this way. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So who we have here, who Abraham is talking to, he had lunch with two angels and Jesus, Jesus before Bethlehem. Now he's having this conversation with Jesus who it, the fullness of God embodies him. And it says in 23, then Abraham approached him and said, which I think is awesome that Abraham has this relationship with the Lord, with God, that he can just approach him. And he approaches him, he comes closer and he asked him this question. He said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? This is a fascinating conversation. The Lord said back to him, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, he's negotiating with God. He's having, he's having a, God, God came and basically said, if it's as wicked as I think it is, I'm wiping the place out. Everybody goes. It's, it's going to pollute the entire region, it is hell on earth, we're just done. And he goes, but wait, 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 wait. If there's some good people, you're not going to wipe the good people out too, are you? If there's 50 good people. And so they have this negotiation. Now, part of what's going on here is that Abraham's nephew, Lot, moved in that direction and then eventually moved into the city of Sodom. And so he's living there and he's like, we got to, what about Lot? You know, well, then Abraham spoke up again. 
Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is less than 50? What if it's five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? Well, the Lord answers, if I find 45 people there, he said, I will not destroy it. And then it says in verse 29, once again, he spoke to him. What if there are only 40 people found there? And they go back and forth like this until they get down to 10 people. And God says, okay, if there's 10 people, we won't, I won't destroy it. And then in verse 33, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. He just... He just talked God out of the original plan into a new plan if we find 50 people. And then he works back and forth in this conversation with God down to 10 people, and God is playing along. What is up with that? And this teaches us so much about prayer and a bunch of other things, but there's something that we need to understand before we get to that, and that's this. Why would God wipe out the good with the bad? Why would that even be possibly a plan? Because as Westerners, as Americans and and people from Western culture in general, we look at situations on an individualistic basis. You know, my, my salvation, my relationship with God, it is completely and totally based on my, what I do with God. My relationship with Jesus, my this, my that. It's me and God. And everybody else, it's them and God. And there's some truth in that. But I am judged by my own merit, my own life, and what I've done with Jesus, and that's the way it is, individualistic. In Eastern cultures, it is a much more collective mindset. When, when, and when one person does wrong, the whole group is guilty. That's the mindset. Now, here's what's important to remember. The Bible was written in an Eastern culture. Now, as we get into the New Testament, we will begin to see Greek and Western thought begin to influence it. But even in the New Testament, when the Bible writes you nine times out of 10, he's talking about, it's talking about the church or the nation of Israel or a family. It's collective. It's not individual, right? This is the mindset. This would not have made them blink. So to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah because they have grown wicked didn't seem strange to them. And yet here's Abraham going, hey, but let's not do that. Let's not do that. And God, he kind of stands in the gap for these cities and has this conversation this back and forth. And God, the plan changes You know, part of it, I think, is that, you know, the the righteous people who lived in that city would have played a part in allowing it to get to that point. You know, so there's a there's some collective responsibility there. And and this this whole and it's it's a biblical mindset, this whole idea that we're responsible for the sins of our nation. You know, on the National Day of Prayer, whenever the church gets together to pray for our nation or our state, there is always a part where we pray and repent for the sins of our nation, even though maybe we personally did not commit them. 
two dynamics here, an individual aspect to our faith, which is real in, in, a, in a Western mindset, and a group aspect to our faith, which is real in an Eastern mindset. And, and the truth of it lies somewhere in the middle, right? There is a group aspect to it. All right, that said, Abraham has this back and forth with God, back and forth, back and forth, 40, 40, or 50, 45. Let's take it to 30. Okay, how about 10? And they're going back and back, and, and it's this ongoing conversation with God, which we call prayer, right? And that brings me to point number three, which is this, prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Sometimes prayer changes you, and other times prayer changes the world. You know, prayer is, is a huge part of prayer. It's just asking God for something. You know, in the old English, we would say, well, we wouldn't, I wouldn't, but they would say, pray tell, tell me what you want. Make your requests. And so um, there's, I think, a big lesson in this passage about prayer. And, uh, and it just happens to break down into a, B, and C. So the A, B, C is a prayer, and the A is this, approach God with humility. Approach God with humility. In verse 27, it says, Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. He, he, he does not hesitate to go to God, to have the conversation with God. We, we've touched on this in, in previous weeks. He's, he's got this conversational relationship with God, and yet at the same time, he understands reverence and humility. And he approaches God with that reverence and humility. Super important. That's the A. The B is this. Be bold about what you want. Be bold about what you want. Make your requests known. Abraham wanted to save the city. He wanted to save Lot. And, and so he, he thought, well, I'm gonna, the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to save the city, and then we're going to have this, this conversation, and I'm going to ask God for what I want. And he does, and it's a bold conversation. And we can boldly ask God for what we want. That's the B. So approach with humility. Be bold about what you want. And C is this, continue in prayer till you get a clear no or an answer. Abraham keeps coming back, and he keeps coming back, and he keeps coming back. You know, I don't really get this part of prayer. Like, it doesn't make sense. When I say I don't get it, it's not that I don't do it. It's just that it, it's counterintuitive for me. I think, well, God knows what I want or what I need before I know what I want or need. And certainly after I tell him what I want or need, it's, it's in his hands. I don't want to pester him or bother him. But Jesus, when he's teaching about prayer, over and over again says, no, no, no. Persistence wins the day. Keep coming back. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking till you get what you're after. He tells a parable of this widow who, who is has been done wrong, and so she goes to the judge for justice, but the judge doesn't care about her. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about justice, and he doesn't have time for her, so he ignores her. But she keeps coming back, and she keeps coming back, and she keeps coming back, and she will not leave him alone. So finally, he's like exasperated. He's like, okay, I'll give you what you want, not because I fear God, not because I care about you or I fear man or anything else or I care about justice, 
but because you have pestered me to death. And Jesus is like, okay, do that in prayer. Now, I don't think God, Jesus wants us to, to pester God, and pestering isn't the point. The point is persistence. Keep coming back, keep coming back. We see Abraham's persistence in this conversation. Keep praying. Continue in prayer till you get a clear no. So if God says no, we stop. And if he doesn't, we keep praying until we get an answer. Guys, it's so important to remember that prayer is a process, not an event. Prayer is a process. It's not an event. It's not a one-time thing. The things change in prayer. Abraham's request, it's it's interesting because if you follow along in, in the passage, his request gets clearer and clearer and clearer. He starts kind of out here at the funnel, and it, it comes in to exactly what he wants at the end. And it got clearer as the conversation went on. He, he asked for 50, but it's not really what he needed, but it probably wasn't even clear to him what he needed at that point. I know for me, when I pray, sometimes I will come to God and I just have a burden on my heart or, or something that a direction that I need to to pray in or whatever. And as I verbalize and as I talk it through with God over time, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer, and I can pray better and better and better. My conversation with God gets better and better. It helps me understand what what I need. See, prayer is a process. It's a refining process in our own thinking and in our own heart as well. It's a process, not an event. And that brings me to point number four, last point. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, and neither should you. God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, and neither should you. In Ezekiel 33, the prophet Ezekiel says this, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. So he's speaking for God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Guys, that is the heart of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. God does not desire to send everybody to hell. He does not desire to smite everybody. He does not desire to condemn the the wicked. That is not his heart. But there are natural consequences of wickedness that will kill us in the long run. And there are spiritual consequences of wickedness that will God will not ultimately, in the big picture of things, allow it to run over the righteous. And so there are times when hellfire and brimstone fall from heaven, as we will see. But it's not because God wants or longs for condemnation, or smiting, or wiping, wiping people out because they've sinned. No, 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 quite the opposite. God longs for the salvation of those people. He longs that they would turn to Him. He longs for it so much that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to become a human being and be tortured and die on the cross so nothing would be in the way of your turning to Him and coming into an uninterrupted relationship with the God of the universe. 
That's the heart of God. I love the story in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus has is, is got some, some folks that are not going along with the program. And so his, his disciples come to him, specifically James and John. They're called the sons of thunder. They're kind of rough and tumble. And, and they come to him and they, they ask him, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> now, I don't like, well, they couldn't have done that. Anyway, Jesus would have had to call down fire from heaven. And Jesus was like, no, 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 guys, you don't get it. Now, eventually John goes on to become the, the disciple of love. Like eventually John gets it and he is about love and grace and, and all of those things. But at this point, he's like, we can, we can call down fire from heaven. Let's do another Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be great. Guys, the truth is sometimes Christians get this way. Sometimes we look at how crazy our world is and how it's messing up our kids and how it's messing up our world and it's messing up, you know, and, and it's just like, well, you just smite them all. That is not the heart of God. It's not that you have to remember and reflect on the heart of God. You know, not long after Jesus left, actually, I don't know exactly how long after Jesus left, the church and the Christians started to get a little antsy because Jesus hadn't come back yet, and they really thought he was coming back soon. Um, and so they start asking questions. Why, why is he delaying? What's taking so long? Why is this going so slowly? And Peter in, or <clears throat> Peter in 2 Peter 3 wrote these words, and I think you probably would do well to memorize them. It says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but what? But everyone to come to repentance. Repentance means turn. Turn from the sin that you've given yourself to and walk to God. And Jesus died so that you can walk straight to God. It's the same sentiment that we find Ezekiel sharing, right? Turn, turn, and come back to God. Turn from your wickedness and come back to God. Now, this doesn't mean that we condone sin or affirm sin or, or any of those things, but what it does mean is we share grace and love, and we point people to Christ, and we, we share with them the hope of the gospel with the hope that they would repent, that they would turn and come back to God because that's what God desires more than anything else in the whole world. He doesn't want us to live with the long-term consequences of our sinfulness and the wickedness that we've given ourselves over to. He gives us a do-over through Jesus because he longs for our salvation and our life to be full and connected with him. He longs for it that much. And if you're new to this church thing, that's really good news for you. It's good news because God is rooting for you. He's not against you. I'm rooting for you. This whole church congregation and family is rooting for you because we want you to experience life in all of its fullness. That's why Jesus said he came. And sometimes we have to get to the end of our, of our, of our well, what, 
what today the Bible calls wickedness. We turn ourselves over uninhibited. But God's just waiting. He's been pursuing you, and He is hoping that you will wake up, come to your senses, and go, I don't want to live like this anymore. And that you will turn or repent and come home to Him. And if you've never done that, that starts with a prayer. It starts with a conversation with Him. And you can have that right now, just right where you're sitting. And I encourage you to have that conversation with God and to come home today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and new beginnings. God, help us to never forget that. Help us to, to live in that reality in our own lives, God. And as we share our lives and your love with the world around us, help us to communicate that really, really well there too. Lord, I pray that you would welcome some people home today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.